Before I start this week's Financial Crime Weekly podcast, just a quick note of thanks, as ever, to the photographer who took the photograph which adorns the cover art of the podcast. That was Sora Shimazaki at Pexels. Let's get on with it. Hello and welcome to the Financial Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Kirkbride. It's been a good and interesting week this week for financial crime stories, the usual bits and pieces on sanctions, a bit of new research on money mules published by one of the leading banks in the United Kingdom, some warnings about possible scams out there relinked to the cost of living crisis, a bit of upcoming bribery and corruption news, some bits on market abuse and a little bit more. So let's start, as we always seem to do, with Russian sanctions. Actually, not just Russian sanctions, but as you will see, there's a bit of sanctions news globally, which still continues from this fallout from the sham referendums, referenda, in those sovereign parts of Ukraine unlawfully annexed by the Russian Federation. Policymakers maintain their interest in it, particularly in the EU, but we'll start with the UK. First, the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation has announced one addition and one removal to the consolidated list subject to asset freeze. The addition is, here we go, Sergei Vladimirovich Yelisevev, hope I got that right, a Russian politician, and the removal of Sergei Stanislavovich Yelisevich, which I'm beginning to wonder was a case of mistaken identity because the names are way too similar, even if my pronunciation was a little bit mangled. It's unclear from the notice, which, of course, is in the podcast description. In quick succession, that is the next day, Offsi also announced a further amendment to the consolidated list, only this time an amendment which relates to the problems in Yemen, which go broadly unreported in the mainstream press, but they're still happening. Added to the list is Ahmed al-Hamazi, or Hamzi. Uh, the link to the notice is in the podcast description. Further this week, Offsi has also amended a general license which took effect on the 1st of March 2022, to include payments within the terms of the license relating to insolvency proceedings under the German Banking Act. The amended license is, of course, in the podcast description. Now, we move beyond the United Kingdom. The big news this week is from the European Commission, which has announced that the Council has adopted its eighth package of sanctions against Russia. The package announced responds to Russia's continued escalation and illegal war against Ukraine including by illegally annexing Ukrainian territory based on sham referenda, mobilizing additional troops, and issuing open nuclear threats. The sanctions have been extended to the annexed non-Ukrainian government-controlled areas of Ukraine and the imposition of new export restrictions targeted at the Russian military, including components used in weapons and technical materials for aviation. In addition, the sanctions impose, quotes, 7 billion euros worth of additional import restrictions which have been agreed. It includes, for example, a ban on the import of Russian finished and semi-finished steel products subject to a transition period for some semi-finished machinery and appliances, plastics, vehicles, textiles, footwear, leather, ceramics, certain chemical products and non-gold jewellery. The sanctions also begin to implement the G7 agreement on Russian oil exports. 
and they ban EU nationals from holding posts in government-controlled bodies of certain state-owned corporations. They also tighten existing prohibitions on crypto assets as well as further limiting the provision of professional services, something which has already been banned for some time and which we looked at at the time in the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. The link to the official announcement is in the podcast description as well as a link to a handy Q&A the European Commission published yesterday or on Friday uh, in relation to its eighth package. The announcement in the EU's eighth sanctions package relates to the G7 oil agreement, as I mentioned. Today, there was a further announcement from the US Treasury officials that the implementation of that agreement will be done in three stages, or three phases. The first phase targets Russian crude oil, the second focuses on diesel, and the third phase on naphtha. Now, I hadn't heard of it either. I had to look that one up. Apparently, it's a flammable oil containing various hydrocarbons obtained by the dry distillation of organic substances such as coal, shale, or petroleum. So now you know. A couple of mop-up stories now, one from the EU and one from a member state of the EU. First, Mairead McGuinness, the EU Commissioner for Financial Stability, giving a press conference this week, announced that the EU's sanctions regime against Russia is working well and that any suggestion from the Russian Federation that the sanctions are not working was merely propaganda. Well, I think we can all have worked that out ourselves. Finally, authorities in the Netherlands, specifically the Dutch Fiscal Information and Investigation Service, with the support of Europol, has, uh, uh, have uh, arrested an individual for alleged EU trade sanctions evasion. The allegation is that the individual arrested has been supplying goods which could be used by the Russian military, specifically the provision of microchips, which can be used in Russian weaponry. The link to the Europol press release is in the podcast description. We now turn away from sanctions to money laundering, and particularly a report this week which was published on money mules. Now, this was, I thought, mildly eye-raising, this story, which, when you set it against the context of a story which I cover later in this podcast, makes you think about crime demographics and not only perpetrators, but also, as you'll see in a moment, victims. This week, Lloyd's Banking Group has published a report indicating an increase in the age of money mules. While those aged under 24 remain most likely to commit the crime, there has been an increase of 29% over the previous year in over 40s acting as money mules. The press release provides, These people use their bank account to receive criminal cash, either intentionally or unintentionally, which is often money that's been stolen through a scam. People can be duped or pressured into working with fraudsters through social media posts, fake job advertisements, or targeted emails, which promise promise cash in exchange for making bank transfers, withdrawing and depositing money, or giving over control of their bank account to someone else. These schemes, which allow people to get sort of rich quick, with their instant cash payments being available for the transaction, do carry a hefty prison sentence of up to 14 years for the most serious and persistent offenders. While that's not likely to be the case for those doing it on a one-off basis, it is the case that as the cost of living issue continues to bite, 
something which is mentioned in the press release, by the way, people will be tempted to buy these schemes. The press release is certainly worth a read. It's quite short, not only for its headline elements, which I've kind of flagged here, but that it includes tips to stay safe from those who might act as money mule unintentionally, and also with a sage-like warning in the form of a case study uh, for those who like human interest elements of such news. The link is, of course, in the podcast description. Now we turn to scammers. There's been a consistent theme that I've mentioned in the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, and it relates to the ability of scammers to exploit every circumstance of humankind and turn it to their own ends for financial gain. This week in the UK, we see it again with a warning issued by the Chartered Trading Standards Institute, which has warned of an increase in energy efficiency scams in response to the global price of energy and the well-reported struggles people will face over the winter to stay warm. Of particular concern are what they describe as, quote, scam energy rebate text messages, energy tariff mis-selling by doorstep sellers, and loan sharks preying on the most vulnerable affected by the cost of living crisis. None of this will come as a surprise to anyone working in financial fraud, and it's a sad truth that there is a significant likelihood that many people will be taken in by these scams, compounding an already miserable situation. Anyone would be well advised to pause and reflect before responding to any scheme, which sounds too good to be true, because as we know, anything that is too good to be true probably is too good to be true. A further scam story comes this week from the Financial Conduct Authority in the UK, which has issued a warning to those saving for their old age. It's thought that a number of people are either considering the use or are already using pension savings to cover the cost of living, with the possibility that those planning to do so could fall victim to scammers. The research, which was published by the Financial Conduct Authority, indicates that a quarter of consumers would withdraw pension savings early to cover the cost of living, which, the research suggests, would make them vulnerable to scammer misdirection, where scammers offer a free pension review before tricking the victim because of a general misunderstanding of pension savings and the operation of pension schemes. The data does seem to indicate some movement in this area, where it indicates that, quotes, the number of pension plans accessed for the first time in 21-22 increased by 18% on the previous year to a figure of 705,666, when you compare that to the figure for the year 2021, which was only 596,080, which was still unusually high. Frankly, as with the previous story on energy scams, a significant amount of this comes down to education and a willingness to take the time to reflect on offers which, and I will say it again, seem too good to be true. The press release which lists commonly used tactics used by pension scammers is in the podcast description and certainly worth a read and, frankly, worth distributing to those loved ones who might be affected. I would say that the moral of these stories is don't be so ready to trust that unsolicited text message. And if you do know of someone who could be vulnerable to a scam every now and then, do take time to warn them about the issues. It'll be the gift 
that keeps on giving. Now, away from scammers to a bit of bribery and corruption, or upcoming news on bribery and corruption. First, the United Kingdom. On the 13th of October, the House of Lords, which is the second legislative chamber in the UK Parliament, is due to debate the following question. To ask His Majesty's Government what assessment they have made of the effects of corruption in the United Kingdom. Accompanying the announcement of the debate is a useful document in the House of Lords Library for anyone who wants a quick understanding of corruption and issues surrounding it. The link to the document is in the podcast description. Another thing to look out this week is the publish, uh, publication by Transparency International of its biannual Exporting Corruption Report. This is a quote from the press release. The report reviews efforts of 47 leading export economies to investigate, prosecute and punish companies that bribe officials in foreign countries from 2018 to 2021, assessing compliance with the OECD Anti-Bribery Convention. The report, which I suppose will be published on its website, will be available on the 11th of October. The press release with the announcement is, of course, in the podcast description. Now, a reasonably interesting story about market abuse, which comes from an announcement by the Financial Conduct Authority this week that they have issued fines against Sigma Broking Limited, Sigma, and three of its directors for failures in market abuse compliance procedures. Between December 2014 and August of 2016, Sigma did not report or failed accurately to report 56,000 contracts for different trans- for difference transactions to the Financial Conduct Authority. It also failed to identify 97 suspicious transactions or orders that it should have reported to the Financial Conduct Authority. The firm's failings relate to its inadequate governance and oversight by the Board of Directors, which is why much of the response of the Financial Conduct Authority was targeted at one current and two former directors. The firm was fined £531,000 and prohibition orders and fines were issued against former officers and one current officer, as I said, of Sigma. The former officers are Simon Tyson, who was the uh, who's the former chief executive and director, has been issued with a prohibition order and fined £67,900. Stephen Tomlin, who is a former director, has also been issued with a prohibition order and fined £69,600. Matthew Kent, a current director, was also issued with a fine of £83,600. Links to the press release and all four of the decision notices of the Financial Conduct Authority are listed in the podcast description. And finally this week, well, a couple of and finallys, two stories. First, the agreement between the government of the United States of America and the government of the UK on the access to electronic data for the purpose of countering serious crime agreement came into force on the 3rd of October. This is something that we've looked at in previous weeks on the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. It is a data sharing arrangement between the US and the UK. The agreement allows investigators from both countries better access to data for combating serious crime while balancing privacy rights and civil liberties. Yes, that is the press release speaking, not me. This is also the press release under 
the data access agreement, service providers in one country may respond to qualifying lawful orders for electronic data issued by the other country without fear of running afoul of restrictions on cross-border disclosures. And finally, genuinely finally this week, the UK House of Commons Library just on Friday published research, a research briefing on the Economic Crime and Corporate Transparency Bill 2022-2023. We've mentioned this bill before on the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. They finally published this research briefing. I haven't looked at it yet. It's 60 pages long. I'll probably read it this week and I may even produce a special edition of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast just to have a report on what it says. If you want to read it yourselves before that special edition comes out, the link to the document is available in the podcast description. When will I get that special edition out? Probably Friday. Busy week this week. Anyway, that's it for this week's Financial Crime Weekly podcast. If you want to, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll hear from me on Friday with the special, but again on Sunday, all being well, with the usual roundup of all things financial crime. Have a great week, everyone. 